stories in the Bible, and it's a story of a man who was a wealthy man, who was a good man in many ways, who had his, a happy family, who was well respected in the community, and then because he was a good man, not because he was a bad man, because he was a good man, he was tested and tempted in a horrendous way. He lost all his wealth, all his children died, were killed, uh, his standing in the community disappeared, and he lost his health. He was in severe physical pain. And <clears throat> the book of Job is essentially a poem which is largely a conversation between Job and his friends. And his friends are trying to explain to him how, why these things have happened to him and what he should do about it. And it's an incredibly powerful poem, and it goes into enormous depth. And I think emotionally, it goes into fantastic depth. And uh, I, I do think that one of the problems that we face in our culture and in our society and in ourselves so often is shallowness, that we need more uh, depth. Now, these two chapters, chapters 29 and 30, uh, he is... Actually, 31 as well does this. This is uh, Job speaking. It is the middle of his longest speech, and it's his 11th speech, and he is talking about himself. And I want to read it. Uh, it is a lament. It's really an appeal to God. For those of you who like pipe music, and that, I'm sure that's all of you, and I don't mean like organ pipe, I mean real bagpipe music, um, there's a style of bagpipe music, classical bagpipe music, believe it or not. It's called Pibroch. Now, I love Pibroch, but to other people, it just sounds like a dirge. It is a dirge. It's a real drone, but it's brilliant dirge. And uh, this is, to me, it's like Pibroch. It's, it's, um, it's unrelenting in expressing his sorrow. It is sad. It is desolate. But it's beautiful in its own way, and there's plenty for us to learn. So let me read the two chapters first of all. Job 29, page 530. Job continued his discourse. How I long for the months gone by, for the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, and by his light I walked through darkness. Oh, for the days when I was in my prime, when God's intimate friendship blessed my house, when the Almighty was still with me, and my children were around me, when my path was drenched with cream, and the rock poured out for me streams of olive oil. When I went to the gate of the city and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside, and the old men rose to their feet. The chief men refrained from speaking and covered their mouths with their hands. The voices of the nobles were hushed, and their tongues stuck to the roof of their mouths. Whoever heard me spoke well of me. Those who saw me commended me. Because I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist him. The man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. I thought, I shall die in my own house. My days as numerous as the grains of sand. My roots will reach to the water, and the dew will lie all night on my branches. My glory will remain fresh in me, the bow ever new in my hand. Men listen to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. 
After I had spoken, they spoke no more. My words fell gently on their ears. They waited for me as for showers and drank in my words as the spring rain. When I smiled at them, they scarcely believed it. The light of my eyes, of my face, was precious to them. I chose the way for them and sat as their chief. I dwelt as a king among his troops. I was like one who comfort mourners. But now they mock me. Men younger than I, whose fathers I would have disdained to put with my sheepdogs. Of what use was the strength of their hands to me since their vigor had gone from them? Haggard from want and hunger, they roamed the parched land in desolate wastelands at night. In the brush, they gathered salt herbs, and their food was the root of the broom tree. They were banished from their fellow men, shouted at as if they were thieves. They were forced to live in the dry stream beds, among the rocks and in holes in the ground. They brayed among the bushes and huddled in the undergrowth, a base and nameless brood, for they were driven out of the land. And now their sons mock me in song. I've become a byword among them. They detest me and keep their distance. They do not hesitate to spit in my face. Now that God has unstrung my bow and afflicted me, they throw off restraint in my presence. On the right, the tribe attacks. They lay snares for my feet. They build their siege ramps against me. They break up my road. They succeed in destroying me without anyone helping them. They advance as through a gaping breach. Amid the ruins, they come rolling in. Terrors overwhelm me. My dignity is driven away as by the wind. My safety vanishes like a cloud. And now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. Night pierces my bones. My gnawing pains never rest. In his great power, God becomes like clothing to me. He binds me like the neck of my garment. He throws me into the mud, and I am reduced to dust and ashes. I cry out to you, O God, but you do not answer. I stand up, but you merely look at me. You turn on me ruthlessly. With the might of your hand, you attack me. You snatch me up and drive me before the wind. You toss me about in the storm. I know you will bring me down to death, to the place appointed for all the living. Surely, no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries for help in his distress. Have I not wept for those in trouble? Has, my soul, has not my soul grieved for the poor? Yet when I hoped for good, evil came. When I looked for light... Then came darkness. The churning inside me never stops. Days of suffering confront me. I go about blackened, but not by the sun. I stand up in the assembly and cry for help. I have become a brother of jackals, a companion of owls. My skin grows black and peels. My body burns with fever. My harp is tuned to mourning, and my flute to the sound of wailing. So Job is, to put it mildly, not in a good place. Um, Louise, is the button there? Or is it behind? Can't find it. We can't find the button. That's after the sons of Korah. Everything's disappeared. I'll just tell you to move it on. Okay, thanks. I don't, we're not obviously going to go into great depth in those two chapters. And, and you don't really need to because it, it's, you get the sense of it. You get the feeling, the utter desolation and the loneliness and he feels and the sense of injustice and the sense of despair. Let's go on to the first one, please. Two parts of it. Really, chapter 29 says, I remember my past happiness. I remember what it was like. And chapter 30 is saying, look at my present misery. So we'll do chapter 29 first. Verse 2, how I long for the months gone by. He's not just looking, viewing the past through rose-colored glasses. 
it is possible for you to have a period in your life where you really experience and know God's blessing. And at a spiritual level where especially you're conscious of God's blessing. And you think that because we live in a culture where things are to progress all the time. The great thing is to be progressive. That you'll progress as a Christian. But then look at you now. You're struggling. You're stumbling. Before you didn't understand when people backslid. Now you understand exactly why people would backslide. Because you're almost there. You remember the great days like Job. Days when God watched over him. When his steps were drenched in cream. He was the chief man. He was the most respected the, the image that we have in chapter 29, it's a bit like out of a Jane Austen novel. It's of the village um, squire uh, dispensing justice or charity. But in actual fact, it's actually quite a beautiful picture of what people who have power and people who have wealth should do. Not use it for themselves, but they have a responsibility for righteousness and justice. It's interesting that Job describes his Christianity in a, in a, in a really interesting way, his, his belief in God. He describes it not in terms of his religious lit- rituals mostly, but he describes it in how he treated particularly the poor. Job himself had a life of dignity, respect, and moral righteousness. He helped the poor, the underprivileged, the dying, the blind, and the lame. I, I love this phrase where he says, I, was, I made the widow's heart sing. Verse 13, the man who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. And I just want to back off from that a minute and, and just ask simply, could I, could I say that? Could you say that? There are people who are dying in the city and there are people who are widows and there are people who are parentless And do they look at us and they say, I sing because of these people. I I just, our Christianity is so pathetic if it's so internalized and all about me and Jesus that we don't see the needs. I made the widow's heart sing. Material prosperity and social honor go together with the opportunity to do good to those in need. You know what we've done in our culture? We've ghettoized poverty. And what I mean by that is this. That if you've got enough money, you can live in a nice area where you don't have to meet people who are poor and struggling and so on. And we've left it up to government. We say, let government deal with that. And it's all very well to be incredibly, um, and again, I'm not making a political point, but it's all very well to be incredibly you know, left-wing and liberal and so on and say, government should be doing this and I'm going to vote for this. But in reality, people don't need governments to do things. I think governments should do things, but they don't need that so much as they actually just need people. I honestly don't think an act of parliament ever made a widow's heart sing. I think people, being with people and meeting with people, it's the easy option when someone comes around the door and shoves a can in your face to give a pound or 10 pounds or 100 pounds to Oxfam. It's, that's much easier than actually bothering and speaking to and sharing with people who are dying, people who are widows, people who are blind. 
I gave, I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. And that does come in with what we were looking at yesterday or last week in terms of wealth. Do we recognize that the wealth that we have and the positions we've been given in society are there not for, just for us to enjoy but also to help others? Let's go on to the next one, please. You'll see this from 1 Timothy 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I read an extraordinary story this week of a woman who's incredibly wealthy, but she didn't want her children to know because she thought it would be a really bad burden. I think it's like one billion pounds she's got. And her husband knew. Anyway, there's been a divorce. She still doesn't want her children to know, so there's a kind of super injunction to prevent that happening because she doesn't want her children to be burdened with that. But what struck me was her husband is suing her She's given him the house, and you're talking about a big house in London. She's given him the house, and she gave him five million pounds. And he's suing her on the grounds that five million pounds is not enough to live on. So, and he wants 18 million as a first installment almost. And you're just thinking, you live in a different world. You live in a different world. But then I have to think about it this way. I'm going to go home and there'll be a lovely meal and as always, Annabel will cook a lovely meal and um, I might think, where am I going to get money? Where are we going to do this? What about this bill? What about that bill? But then someone can come, like, for example, there were total children who came and to them, my wealth is like the 18 million, me talking about the 18 million. And so I have to stop and I have to think, what do I do with what I've got? What do I do with the home and any kind of position and so on? And you really, Job was saying, I, I did this. I help people. I serve people. Job was a wealthy man and wealthy men are not usually loved, but Job was. He really was. He was determined to help the sick and the disabled and the poor. And he knew that God was his friend. And all he wanted to do was live to his old age. I thought, I shall die in my own house. My days as numerous as the grains of sand. My roots will reach the water. And the dew will lie all night on my branches. My glory will remain fresh in me. The bow ever new in my hand. He's just basically saying, I really, really have the good life. And he did have that. And yet it didn't help him. Let's go on to the next one, please, please. Ecclesiastes 7, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it's not wise to ask such questions. When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. How do we cope with disappointment and discouragement and depression? It's a hard truth for a Christian to realize. But the fact is that there are good times and that there are bad times. And that's what life throws up for us. And God knows all that. And God is involved in all of that. 
But then Job goes on to say, but now God has taken away. Now they mock me, verse 1, verse 9. Now their sons mock me in song. And verse 16, and now my life ebbs away. Days of suffering grip me. For Job, there's a contrast between the former days and his present condition. Dante and, uh, says this in one of his poems, there is no greater sorrow than to recall a time of happiness in misery. You know, at least if you've been miserable all your life, it's no change. But when you've lost something, the Lord has given and the Lord has taken away, as Job said. What had happened? Honor had been replaced by mockery. All his relationships have been destroyed. That's really what that is about. His relationship with God, his relationship with his relatives, his relationship with his friends, his relationship with society. Once he was honored by nobles, once he was getting the invites to the royal wedding. Now the absolute scum of society go out of their way to avoid him or to spit in his face. People treat him with contempt and God has deserted him. I don't know if this has ever happened to you or if you're aware of this at all. It is one of the most dehumanizing and debilitating and disgusting things to have any human being treat you with contempt. You see it sometimes when people patronize you. You see it, for example, you walk down the road, you walk down the Perth Road, and there's a guy sitting there begging. You can treat him with contempt by patronizing. You can treat him with contempt by just turning up your nose at him. How do, you, how do you treat him with dignity when he's placed himself in a position which is so undignified? The young mock. They're basically street gangs that come up to Job. There's a loss of dignity. You're a victim of false witness. There's a loss of dignity for the disabled. There was a loss of dignity when the Jews were herded onto cattle trucks naked. Why were they naked? Why make them naked? Because it degraded them. There's a loss of dignity when a grown man is reduced to senility, dribbling and incontinent. How do you see the image of God in somebody like that? And one of the biggest cruelties that we ever do to anybody is to treat them with contempt. And one of the hardest things to face is when you are treated with contempt. You think about it the opposite way. Think about it, how you love it, when people praise you. I got a couple of letters once, same day, one after the other, and they were just, it was just great in one sense. They were so funny because one was a letter after I'd been speaking at a meeting, which was really complimentary. And, you know, my head just went even bigger. It was kind of like, you know, C.S. Lewis on steroids. Was, that was the description. I thought, that's really nice. That was great. And I was really encouraged by that. And I just began to believe it. And the next letter I opened was, you're a complete dork. <laughs> you know, absolute waste of space and a total waste of time. Well, the truth is, I think, somewhere in between those two. We hate it. We hate it when that happens to us. And yet Job says, this is what, this is what has occurred to me. I'm, I'm treated like dirt. A righteous society is replaced by decline in society. I think Job is feels, like many of us do, that we live in an age when the old foundations are crumbling and old certainties are losing their way, where a happy family life is ruined by death and loss. There's sorrow in there for the loss of his family. 
The cream replaced by physical suffering, the sheer physical suffering. Verses 16 to 23, just the pain that he goes through. Day and night it grips him. And though he calls to God, there's no answer except more pain. In chapter 29 and verse 14, he's clothed with justice and righteousness. And in chapter 30 and verse 18, he's clothed with pain. The blackening of his skin, which is just not caused by sunburn in his case, but just caused by ill health and the inner burning with fever. The popularity replaced with desertion. Let's go to the next one, Louise, please. 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. Deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. Where's all my friends gone? We, we, we're the Facebook generation, at least some of us are, and we have hundreds of Facebook friends, but they're not there when there's trouble. But Job is not talking about that. He's talking about people who were his real friends. And Paul is talking about people who were in ministry with him, and he's being persecuted, and he stands up, and they've all gone. They're not there. Popularity has been replaced by desertion. And above all, he feels deserted by God. Verse 24. Surely no one lays a hand on a broken man when he cries for help in his distress. Have I not wept for those in trouble? Has my soul not grieved for the poor? Yet when I looked for good, evil came. When I looked for light, then came darkness. And he's just saying, God, why have you done this to me? William Cowper, who is... A fantastic poet, a fantastic hymn writer, but was a manic depressive, probably bipolar. And yet out of that agony came the most extraordinary understanding of our relationship with God. And this particular hymn, where is the blessedness I knew when first I saw the Lord? What peaceful hours I once endured, how sweet their memory still, but they have left an aching void the world can never fill. Cowper was saying, I feel this so much more. I had it but I've lost it. And God hears, but it seems as though God does not answer. And so Job's contentment is replaced by the churning inside. He feels like a besieged city and he's just ripped up inside. And the question then becomes, how much pain can a human being take? It's humiliating, it's merciless, it's violent, and it's deadly. Now, I came across this quote. Let's go on to the next one, please. And I thought this really helped in understanding this. Someone was talking about Job's pain. Pain as a sensation is closely associated with anxiety, worry, fear, depression, and other types of emotion. When a patient becomes fearful or anxious, he tends to report that his pain is more intense. Conversely, when he becomes relaxed and not anxious about the pain producing stimulation, he tends to report his pain as less intense. The total experience of pain involves a complex blending of unpleasant sensations with emotions. Okay, let me unpack that just a little bit. What that's saying is this, is pain is not just when someone sticks a knife in you. Pain is not just when you, you, you feel a pain in your leg or you've got a migraine. That's not what pain is. Pain is that plus emotionally, that plus spiritually. And it's all exacerbated and it, it, it all changes in different ways. We are, as human beings, we are not separate compartments. We are all tied up together. And sometimes you can go through what would be the most intense physical pain because your mind and your emotions are in a different place. And sometimes what would be a relatively minor pain physically becomes a very, very intense one 
because your mind and emotions are in a different place. Job is really saying, what is happening to me? He's acutely, miserably, socially, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. He cries out and he says, my harp is turned to mourning, my flute to the sound of wailing. The harp and the flute were instruments for joy, but now they've been turned into bagpipes playing dirges. That's what life is like. And now, this is not saying that every single one of us are in that place. You're not. Most of us probably are not. But I want to suggest this to you, that you will go through these kind of emotions and these kinds of feelings and these kinds of thoughts and this kind of depression and this kind of discouragement. You will, because you live in a broken world and we are broken people. So how do we deal with that? How do we cope with that? Well, if we go on to the next one, and let me just summarize, I think, how we deal with that as Christians. The first is simply, we do what Job did. We have the patience of Job. I think that Job is a deep insight into the psychology of grief. Maybe Job is too assertive. Maybe there's too much self-pity. But he has integrity. He's not just pathetic. He still at the end asserts his innocence. What did I do? I did not deserve this. And he was right. He never gives up. He asks God at, at times to kill him. But he never packs it in. He keeps going on with all the hurt and all the pain. When, when people say, well, I'm not giving up, but I'm withdrawing from the hurt and the pain, that is you giving up. He keeps going. He chooses to suffer, to live, and to trudge on to the end. He doesn't deny his faith, and he doesn't deny God. He keeps saying, Lord, it's you. Why, why you? He doesn't turn away from God. He just says, I, I'm, I'm hurt, and I don't get it. I think that's really important for us to grasp. Romans 5.3, tribulation produces perseverance. Job is learning. His whole life is being sharpened and deepened. If you want God to make you a better Christian, if you want God to take away your shallowness and make you a deeper person, I know of no way that God makes you deeper that doesn't involve digging and pain and hurt. Not because God is a, delights in hurting us. God delights in healing us. But because what's wrong within us is so deep that it requires major surgery and we have to be really patient and we're not good at that the church and Christians in Britain today we want instant 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 and we just have to be really patient sometimes we don't see we say Lord what's going on and we just have to trust God when we don't see and when we don't grasp it his whole life is being sharpened and deepened and I would say that if you are in a situation where you are discouraged and depressed, don't be discouraged and depressed. I know this is kind of stupid advice in one sense, but don't be discouraged and depressed by being, because you're discouraged and depressed. Sometimes things happen to you that if you weren't depressed by them, you'd be inhuman. There'd be something wrong with you. Even Jesus wept, and they weren't crocodile tears. Okay? It's really important that you keep going. It is a bit like running a marathon. The Christian life isn't a sprint, it is a marathon. I know you would never ever tell this from my current shape, but I actually did used to run considerably. Um, and usually, uh, 
the, the running group that I belong to, we talked about the two-mile stitch. Because you got to a stage where at two miles, you really, you'd get a stitch and you really began, began to, to feel the pain. The most important thing at that point was not to stop. You had to get through it. And when you got through it, it was a lot easier. And sometimes, and some of you may be in this position right here this morning, that what you're faced with is a kind of spiritual two-mile stitch where you are really struggling with a whole lot of things. And the big temptation you have is to say, I'm out of here, I'm giving it all up. And God says, don't, don't, just persevere, keep going. Secondly, you count your blessings. You don't value them until you lose them. Calvin says, there's nothing easier with a man than to make himself believe that he shall always continue in a happy state when he is once in it. When you go home today and you give thanks for your food, truly give thanks as though tomorrow you wouldn't have it. When you go to bed tonight and you pray and you thank the Lord for your health, give thanks to that knowing that tomorrow you might not have it. We are strangers in this world. We are passing through. Calvin again says, let us call upon God and wait at his hand for whatsoever it shall please him to send us. And some days we will be sent things, things will happen to us, but we don't comprehend and we don't grasp, but we don't give up on God because of it, because our God is not the shallow, superficial God that so many people believe in, the God who blesses us, and if he doesn't bless us in the way that we want, he doesn't exist. Because the third thing is, you look to Christ when you are in trouble. Where is the hope? The hope cannot come from remembering the past. The hope comes from finding Christ. At the bottom of every pit stands Christ with us. Hebrews 2.10. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. There is no verse in the Bible that puzzles me more than that one. Was Jesus not already perfect? How could he be made perfect through suffering? I'll tell you how. Because perfect in that sense means complete. And Jesus wasn't complete until he experienced human suffering because he couldn't identify and he couldn't empathize with us, but now he can. And so when you come to God and you're coming to Jesus and in your mind, you're praying the right words, but in your mind you're thinking, he is, he's God. How does he know what I feel? How does he know? What does, he, what does God know about being rejected? What does God know about being lonely? What does God know about being patronized and spat upon? What does God know about physical pain? And those are legitimate questions to ask, and they're always answered in Jesus Christ. He made the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Verse, chapter 5 of Hebrews, verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And you say, well, God, I will obey you anyway because I love you, so I don't need to suffer. That's okay. And Jesus, who was perfect, learned obedience from suffering. You haven't grasped who you are or where you are unless you understand that obedience to God is really difficult. The kind of obedience that God wants, which is not a fearful duty, but a loving heart. It's really difficult until we learn to absolutely trust him. And it's true what C.S. Lewis says, that God whispers to us in our pleasures and shouts to us in our pains. That is not to glorify pain, it's not to deify pain, but it's just simply to say no, that no matter whatever circumstance you are in, whether well-fed, in plenty, or in want, or whatever, 
You learn the secret of being content, which is that you are always looking to Jesus Christ. And I think, for me, that is just the most incredible thing. Because I have nothing to say to somebody who says, but David, you don't understand me. You don't understand I was raped. You don't understand I went through this pain. You don't understand how I was humiliated and so on. And I have to say, I don't. No, I'm sorry, I don't. But I can say this. That Christ, being mocked, physically suffering, being rejected, being deserted. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That Christ being innocent, that Christ having the churning inside. Is there ever a deeper churning inside than when Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was so ripped up inside that he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood. In other words, he was so emotionally in pain that physically blood came from him. It's an extraordinary level. And the loss of his family and the loss of his friends. And he did it for us. So my answer as to why, to that original question, with this I finish, my answer is this. I don't commit myself and give to God because I think it's an investment that God will give back to me. And I don't commit and give myself to God because I feel, "Uh uh-oh, if I don't, he's going to send me to hell or he's going to punish or something bad like that. I commit and I invest to God or give to God if you like, purely and simply because of what he did for me. It is a response to his grace. It's not an attempt to earn his grace. It's a knowledge that whatever pain I have gone or am going or will go through, Christ has gone through a deeper pain so that my pain might be healed. And that's the only message I can give to anybody that it is about the depth of the Father's love for us. You've been listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. That's www.stpeters-dundee.org.uk. For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that's www.solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.